Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. I'm going to start my introductions actually while you're coming and sitting. I'm Julia Hobsbawm from Editorial Intelligence. It's very lovely to have this breakfast hosted by the South Bank Centre. Thank you, Jude Kelly. The originator of the idea for this event was Martin Bright of New Deal of the Mind. And I won't say much more except to say that the point of our EI Club discussions and breakfasts of, this, of which this is one is to take topical, provocative issues and discuss them, debate them, argue them in a passionate but civil manner. You are effectively all on the record in that this event is being podcast. Uh, I'm going to hand over to the um, chair, John Wilson, and we, which one of us tells you to turn your mobile phones off? Me. Uh, John Wilson, we're incredibly lucky to have chairing this morning because he is one of the uh, broadcasters most immersed in the arts on a daily basis. He is, of course, one of the presenters of Front Row, even though his experience of the arts is incredibly broad. He probably uh, is known in, in particular for having done some of the interviews with some of the leading rock artists of, of the day. Um, uh, but he is basically both a proper journalist in that he's always looking for the story and a cultural figure. So without further ado, John. Julia, thanks very much indeed. Our thanks to Editorial Intelligence and to New Deal of the Mind, Martin Bright's organisation. We're here, as you know, to discuss the idea of opportunities in a time of austerity, opportunity for the arts, for the cultural sector. The, uh, the cuts in the cultural sector are no longer just looming, the axe is raised and it is ready to fall. It has fallen in some places. 15% uh, will be uh, cut from national museum budgets. The Arts Council is at the moment deliberating, finding out who will survive. Um, in fact, they've announced that there will be no more equal misery, as there has been for many years. No more salami slicing. Uh, local authorities are dealing with 29% cuts across the board. And some of those local authorities have, of course, signalled their response when it comes to the cultural sector. Yesterday, Somerset County Council debated and passed the resolution that 100% of its arts budget would be cut. I know there's some dispute over how much money and where the money comes from, but the arts budget in Somerset will be cut by 100%. So all of these issues we can, we can talk about, but we want to see what will be the result of this time of austerity. Can the private sector step in? And can the art survive and indeed thrive? Uh, the good will out, surely. Maybe a new culture of resistance will emerge in this time. So let me introduce the four panellists that we're going to hear from this morning. Um, I'm going to let them talk about where they've come from and the perspective they're going to bring. And first of all, to my far right, Jude Kelly. Um, I think I'll introduce everybody first of all. Jude Kelly, who is known around these parts, but um, <laughs> Jude Kelly of the South Bank, uh, but ran West Yorkshire Playhouse and many other organisations. Martin Bryce, as I mentioned already, has set up uh, the charity New Deal of the Mind. Uh, he will explain more about what that is, uh, is trying to achieve. Nisaki runs 
the bigger fish organization and, and that is uh, social outreach work and providing days out for young people, particularly people between 14 and, and 18. Yeah, I know, again, you, you, you're going to explain more. And David Worthington on the far left-hand side, designer, former managing director of the Conran Group, and uh, current chairman of uh, cultural and creative skills. Um, first of all, everybody's going to give us five minutes just to, to think around this subject. I'm going to ask Jude, first of all, to give us her thoughts on arts and austerity and opportunity, question mark. <laughs> Okay, I've just come back from China uh, before David Cameron, and um, China, as you probably know, has just presented its next five-year plan, and its 12 pillars uh, state that one of the pillars will be the role of creativity and culture to promote and change society. So I think the first thing to say is that you're talking, of course, to a zealot, if you're looking at me, because I truly believe that in 100 years' time we'll look back and be quizzical and bewildered as to why people ever questioned the notion that creativity and the arts was a natural component of civilised life in the way that education and health is. Uh, I'll say welfare, but obviously you know, that's, that's something that, that is um, malleable. But I think that um, when you're faced with any kind of crisis, if you have faith in something, as I do, about the power and role of the arts, you will inevitably look for an opportunity because you're not going to give up. So that, that's just a starting point from the point of view of who I am as a person and what I believe in. But, I mean, I think that the, the world isn't um, homogenous in terms of arts and creativity. So an art, the, the austerity in this country doesn't necessarily mean austerity in India. It doesn't mean austerity in China. It doesn't mean austerity necessarily in the growing interest in the use of culture in many of the African states. So I, I think it depends whether we're going to think you know, just the island of UK or we're going to think beyond that. So that's the first thing. I think there are enormous opportunities for rethinking uh, how we make sure that we don't close down at this particular moment. It depends whether austerity is something we're going to talk about as a fiscal thing or as a psychological thing. Mm. If we're thinking of austerity as a sort of moment of punishment and severity and puritanicalism, then I think we're going to have hard times. But if we think of it at a moment when we have to do something about our bank balance, and, but, but actually we want to as we maintain and develop a generosity of spirit, then I think we've got some real opportunities. So the first thing I would say is that what the UK has to offer most, not just in a time of austerity but full stop, I think, is the understanding it, it has reached about creativity and culture in its own nation and thinking about how that can be transported and offered to other countries as they develop. Um, and indeed hearing from other countries the very, very powerful way in which places like Brazil, like India, uh, Colombia are using culture with arguably a lot less money than, than we have. And, and the final thing I would say is that we've talked a lot in this country about sustainability, both in a sort of sense of how do you keep things going, but also how do you, how, how are you, uh, how do you box more cleverly in terms of the, the resources of the world in, in the face of global warming. It's been marvellous to be in a time of philosophical and fiscal boom, with the creative sector, and I think we have been in that time. I want to keep the philosophical journey going. And if it's not final financial boom, there might be some things we want to say about ourselves. We have not been great at sharing. We've been very 
propelled forward by each organisation, sort of widening its scope and talking about itself. It, we've, we've definitely been part of the me generation, as in, you know, look at South Bank Centre, look at Tate, look at Cape Farewell, look at any organisation, even if its theories are to be collaborative. Actually, its need to sort of maintain a very individualistic brand, that, that's been a very strong driver. And maybe this is the time for us actually to be really generous and really in partnership and really think again about what that looks like because we can look greedy and, um, and self-obsessed and it's not a good message when in another part of the world we're talking about tightening our belts and, um, and the way that the planet needs to work together. So the opportunity I would say is let's not lose any of our faith in what we believe we would, if we do believe in these things let's not get little Britain about this but think about the way that the whole world is moving and let's talk in partnership not in bunker mentality and then I think you know I, I don't wish this on us but I'm not going to use this as a negative moment Jude, thanks very much. Let's move on. Martin Bright, and, um, admirably coming in under the five minutes there. If we can keep it all to five minutes at the start, and then, um, Martin, your time starts now. OK, I'll try and be admirable. Um, it's no coincidence, of course, that uh, Jude was in China before David Cameron. Where Jude Kelly goes, others always follow. Uh, and indeed, I mean, I'd like to think that where, the, where, where culture and the arts goes, others follow. That uh, it has often been the case that uh, the arts have led the way during times of austerity. Uh, and I hope that's going to be the case this time around too. I mean, we can, we can quote statistics until the cows come home, and I'm afraid I will quote a couple of statistics. Um, you know, we hear time and time again that the creative sector is, um, in Britain, is the largest in Europe. Uh, we're told that uh, it makes up 6.2% of gross value added, which is the newfangled uh, phrase uh, for you know, the, the measure of, of, of what we produce. Uh, used to be called GDP, um, and that it contributes £6 billion to the economy. Um, ministers tell us this, the arts sector tells us this, uh, NGOs tell us this. Ministers employ all the right rhetoric around the creative industries. Um, but my question in these times is, do they, do they really get it? Do they really believe it? Um, and this isn't a party political point at all. Um, uh, and I'm not talking about culture secretaries either, who are paid to believe this stuff and paid to trot this stuff out. What I mean is, do we get it as a political culture? Do we, do we really understand what, a role, what role the creative industries can play in this time of uh, austerity? Uh, and we began talking some time ago about a, a creative economy, but is that anything other than a rather kind of cool catchphrase? Um, now, from the outset, New Deal of the Mind, uh, and some people in this room were at the, at the launch of New Deal of the Mind 18 months ago, um, the charity that I set up, has believed that uh, the creative sector can be at the heart of the recovery. Um, we were kind of jointly inspired by the Works Progress Administration cultural programmes in uh, Depression-era America, uh, and the kind of cultural flowering as well um, of the sort of do-it-yourself culture that came out of the last recession in Britain. And we urged uh, the government of the time, the Labour government of the time, to draw on the creative sector to create jobs. Now, um, I felt it was important at that stage uh, that people just kind of knuckled down, didn't just talk about austerity, but actually knuckled down and started creating jobs. And I was amazed uh, at the willingness of the creative sector to put its shoulder to the wheel. Um, people came forward, Judy in particular, 
um, to say, well, okay, let's just not talk about this, let's actually do it. So what did we do? Um, by working with the Department of Work and Pensions, um, by the end of next year, we, New Deal of the Mind, would have created 700 jobs in creative institutions uh, through something called the Future Jobs Fund, uh, which this government has just abolished. Uh, however, let's not be party political. Uh, we hope to continue working with the new government uh, on something called uh, the Single Work Programme, which will pr replace all of Labour's uh, work creation schemes. Uh, I have to say, the Single Work Programme has to be probably the least creative name any government department has ever come up with for a work creation scheme. Um, so our partners include people like British Library, National Theatre, London Metropolitan Archive, Notting Hill Carnival, Royal Court, BAFTA, Pinewood Studios, all of whom have decided to put their shoulder to the wheel, get people into jobs. We're about to spread our programme across the country into the North West, Essex, Brighton. Um, and uh, at the same time, Jude at the South Bank Centre, Tony Hall at the Royal Opera House and around Covent Garden uh, been running their own Future Jobs Fund schemes, which we hope to use as a model for how you might do work creation in the creative sector in the future. Um, however, um, I think that these were emergency measures. Um, it's my belief that if creativity is to survive this crisis, it's going to have to rethink the way it does things. Um, most government work creation schemes uh, provide good old-fashioned jobs, uh, and many people working in this sector will realise that these old-fashioned jobs just do not exist and haven't for some time. Uh, our view, and we're about to publish a report uh, with an organisation called Enterprise UK uh, called Make a Job, Don't Take a Job, uh, a report authored by my colleague Barbara Gunnell, um, arguing that the, the future of creative talent um, needs to be unleashed by letting people do their old... Their, sorry, do their own thing. Um, quite a strange thing for an old lefty to uh, produce, but I believe that there is a progressive agenda in uh, providing uh, self-employed jobs. Martin, can I ask you to keep some of your powder dry and yep. leave it for the debate, because we are going to move it on, and I want to hear how, from Nee's perspective, how big a fish... Because I, I presume there's going to be some interplay between Absolutely. what you are doing with New Deal in the Mind and what bigger fish... Nisaki is doing with, with your core constituency? Um, okay, I, I would say there was uh, once a great time, and uh, in that great time, everyone had money, and uh, institutions, uh, as the money flowed in, they built uh, bigger monuments themselves and um, found new ways in which to make money. And as they were making their money and they looked at their core business, they said, oh, we can make more money by doing what other people are doing and we can make more money off that money by doing what those people who were servicing those people who served those people were doing. So this went on and went on, and then one day uh, the money stopped, and everyone realised that they were actually working not in a mixed economy, but in an economy whereby they were uh, undercutting the, the, the roots that supported them. And uh, then something like Lehman Brothers crashed out, and uh, everyone ran around in a panic. And what that struck me about that was that that's very similar to what is now happening with the Arts Council and what's happening within the arts sector is that we've had a period of, of 10 years where, in my career, which has been 10 years, whereby uh, the arts as an industry has been working 
not only to do what they did at, at their core, but they started to look out where else they could generate money from. And then as, as they did that, they became bigger, more inflexible, and started to have to find ways to continue to pay for all the people that they now employed. So the thinking shrunk, and uh, everyone became more concerned, not about how they were engaging, supporting, transforming people's lives, and all of these things that they said that they've been doing on paper and then funding applications, became more concerned about how they managed to keep their budgets in check and how everyone managed to keep their nice jobs. And uh, what happened at the bottom is the grassroots organisations struggled and have continued to struggle. So in this situation that we now find ourselves in, it's interesting watching the panic look on a lot of people's faces because it doesn't feel that much of a panic from where I sit because the poor people have always been poor. And uh, what is actually the opportunity now is that those people who, who have minimal, minimal overheads and... Uh, have always been thinking about where the next buck is coming from and how they can squeeze the maximum amount of creativity from the smallest amount of resource are now sitting here thinking this is a great time. That's how I feel about it. Um, on the other side of that, sorry. On the other side of that, um, working with young people, we're a social enterprise working with young people and we very much believe in our philosophy and our organisation is profit for all. So we find ways in which that we can work with other institutions, organisations to find ways for them, to, for us to make money but also for the young people to make money. And what I find now is that young people are no longer concerned about what the arts is doing as a whole. I, I find the young people I work with don't really know very much about the arts and if you ask them what is culture or the culture industry, they don't really know what it is. They know what they're about which is about how they are going to feed themselves. And the only way that they see to do that is through their culture. Let me um, keep it at that for yeah. the moment, because I think that is going to be one of the core points of this discussion, what the future generations, what the young people make of this opportunity and the way that they will use this opportunity. David, can, maybe you can pick up on that point and, and from your own perspective in uh, culture and creative skills. Good morning. Um, well done. I thought what you said was very good. Um, just explain quickly what a skills council is. It's a charity. It's funded by government. It generates its own money as well. And the idea is that it helps the industries that it represents become better skilled. So just park that to one side for a minute. Um, <clears throat> I'm a designer. I think this is good. I think art comes from conflict. Designers deal with change. And mostly what we're talking about here is young people, because if you look at our industries, I slightly beg to differ with Martin's figures. Um, if we take creative and cultural industries from music at one end, performing arts, writers, designers, advertisers, museums, and so on and so forth, we're actually larger than the finance industry. The government doesn't get this. Um, Government talks to me as a designer about minis and miniskirts and Paul Smith. Um, what's worse is I've had two MPs talk to me about how wonderful Joshua Wedgwood was. And it sort of <laughs> leaves me feeling a little kind of worried. Um, but the problem is that we can't, we can't really expect government to actually kind of take this stuff seriously if we go and see government as... 20 independent sectors or 20 independent industries. The premise is we have to go as one. 
we have to explain that we are still currently at the nexus of culture. The Chinese buy our brands. Success in China is a Rolls Royce. That will move. That will inexorably move eastwards. We have a window of opportunity. I think what's happening at the moment will encourage us to think about that, and I think particularly because despite the fact that um, a lot of the people who are going to be damaged by what's going on at the moment are the larger bodies and industries and organisations, the reality of the creative and cultural sector is it's 50% soulless operators, people sitting in bedrooms, garrets, etc., etc., practising what they've always practised. And I think the big thing that we can do is both make the collective argument to government, exactly as Nee said, there's been a huge land grab been going on recently. We need to put that behind us and get on and work together. And we also need to actually provide very practical advice, commercial business advice to people who work on their own. Not so much what it means to be a great designer or a great craftsperson, or indeed to be educated in that way, but to actually understand the business of just doing the job day by day. And I think, therefore, we need to become more practical, more fleet of foot. I mean, it costs us broadly a quarter of the money we get from government to actually service the contract, to explain back up to the people who give us the money why we're spending it in the correct way. It's mad. We need to start turning right as we get onto the aeroplane. Well, let's bring some of those points together. And um, there are roving microphones out there. We'll talk for, I don't know, 20 minutes or so. And if you have questions or points to make, then we'll open it up to the floor in, in a moment. But um, Jude, let me take it back to you first of all. Uh, Martin was saying, and in fact you were both alluding to this point, that the cultural sector, the creative sector, is massive, six, worth £6 billion a year or something. And it has grown. But it is still, in terms of political perception, it's overlooked, it's undervalued. Has it presented itself as a soft target, do you think? I don't see that it's presented itself as any softer a target than anything else at the moment, actually. I think, in a funny way, it's, um, it's probably caused more uh, heartache for some of the ministers uh, worried about their reputation than some of the other ministries because the sector is so articulate and so loud and, and actually people meet each other at dinner parties, I hear. Um, and the, so I think that makes for an uncomfortable situation. I mean, the Somerset 100% is the things that we should... That's what we should be worrying about. It's not London that actually is going to have the huge hit. It's the rest of the country. Because if you think, well, politicians don't get it and communities don't know how to articulate it and young people don't necessarily grasp it or, or experience it even, then, you know, you've, you've got that m manifest right across the country, apart from the great big urban centres. And I think that one of the things that we've got to tick ourselves off for severely is actually not operating as if L London was a capital and pastoral city of its nation. Um, I think that the, um, the, the power of the sector has become more understood by politicians gradually. And you know, it just is that. It's an evolution, it's not a revolution because you know, 25 years ago, people never talked about the creative industries on the cultural sector. They never talked about that in relationship to regeneration or health or restorative justice or you know, uh, opportunities for, uh, for academic mind shifts. And they do talk about that all the time, even if they're not sure how to put the whole thing together as a story. I think that the, 
big problem that the cultural sector has also had, though, talking about the word austerity, if there's one area where I think the UK has chosen to be punitive and, 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 and um, actually really rather vicious, it's about young people. I think the agenda on young people in the last 10 years has been horrible. And, and actually, although the sector has done a lot of work with young people, it's, it's, it's very, very tiny compared to what it was doing for everybody else. And children and young people have no rights, no sort of cultural rights in this country, and none of us have given them any. So I think one of the biggest flaws that we're going to see is that because we already had a system that didn't look at young people's needs properly, when you have a time of cuts, there's, there's a massive job to do to suddenly reverse the psychology and the arts to attend to that. But is there not a paradox here? Let me bring together what you were saying there, and you said that possibly we're looking too much at what's happening in London rather than what's yeah. happening out in the regions. Maybe it's not just a geographical thing, but a generational thing, and, and that links to what you said, Nee, that the young people that you deal with don't really care. They don't understand what, you, what we mean by the cultural sector, by, by the arts. Can you just drill down on that point a bit more? I, I think uh, what I was just thinking as, as Judith's finishing is, is that we should consider that actually we don't actually, we form as much a part of their consideration as, as, for, as we for them. If that makes sense if I've said that the right way around. So, so what I'm saying is, is that how young people are an afterthought in a, in a lot of the, the programming and planning, as, as Jude was saying, and have been so for the last 10 years, the, the, the natural order of things is that we will in turn, as an adult society, be that for them. Mm -hmm. and, and what you have to consider is that you see that now manifesting all over itself. Or, or the young people that we work with are not interested in coming into institutions or organisations, uh, which is how we had the initial conversation at the last... Uh, at the last meeting like this, they're, they're more consider, considered about how they set up their own business, how they form amongst their own community and peer group, how they can form uh, a, a business network and, 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 a, and a way of, of living. And I think in the future, like with, with the Rolls Royce in China, we might find ourselves where we were once the prestigious thing and now become a redundant thing. And I think that's what's occurring. And I think it's already occurred, to be honest, actually. And it's just, we don't know it, or it's not yet being felt, but it's already occurred. So you're saying that young people, when you talk about this word opportunity, they're saying a, they're seeing a business opportunity, rather than an opportunity to broaden the mind. Business, I, I think business, culture and creativity are all one thing to them. You know, it, it's the creative economy for them. So, for example, we are, a project that we're working on with Paul Hamlin is we're building a stock exchange for music and the creative industries, which is really about facilitating a way for young people to be able to make money from their culture independently of everyone else. And Martin, this is where you come in, isn't it? Because your charity New Deal of the Mind, I was there at that meeting, and I was chairing that meeting 18 months ago uh, at 11 Downing Street. An incredible turnout from all the main players of the cultural sectors. But you have put that into practice, and now you are seeing um, the flowering of, of those seeds that you sowed a year and a half ago. We are, but uh, as I said in my introductory remarks, um, there was a gap in the thinking at the very beginning of the attempts by the old government to create work, which was precisely this gap here, which is, which is among young people, uh, what people are fired up by is, is entrepreneurship, setting up their own thing. Uh, and that was not available. And I would urge everybody in this room to think about how we, uh, as a community, facilitate uh, this kind of thinking. I mean, I can remember... Um, 
when uh, we set up New Jude of the Mind in a porter cabin in, in, uh, uh, on the Southbank Centre, thanks to Jude, um, talking to some of the young people that she has brought in there via an organisation called SE1 United. Um, and you talk to them, and they're people that are sometimes on the dole, some of them are at school, uh, and you talk about what they do, and it's kind of amazing, because they are musicians, uh, they're sports coaches at the same time, uh, they're working in their community as youth leaders, uh, and then you say to, I mean, a number of the young people that we, we consulted, but, so what do you want to do? And they'll all say, oh, well, I want to be an entrepreneur. Um, this is what they see as um, how they are going to make their creativity, creativity flourish. Um, so I mean, I salute, uh, I salute what you're doing. I think you know this is exactly where we need to be, and uh, we need to think imaginatively, um, in collaboration with the government. I think uh, about about how how best to encourage this. So we're breeding a generation of entrepreneurs. I'm going to bring that. I'm going to well, ask you to comment on that, yeah. Jude, because I'm sure that worries you. But let me just bring David in on that point because <laughs> you, I, I just hold that thought. <laughs> I'm not second guessing. <laughs> Much. But David, I mean, you're working within uh, not only the cultural and creative <laughs> skill set, but you work as a designer. You have great experience in this field, but you must have seen your profession change beyond all recognition. It's not a big, it's not like a big, big madman office anymore. It's a, it's a young kid with a computer in Hoxton, isn't it? <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think the, um, I mean, one of the one of the problems of with austerity is the sort of return to traditional values. So STEM subjects become, you know, the prime focus. Um, and what you kind of don't think then is actually the, there might be an, imag an, ima an imaginative way of delivering the STEM subjects. So rather than just that vertical market, that something like design runs across. And yeah, it's not just design, but that's obviously the one I do know best. So I, th I think I think there is a there is a myop myopic kind of view of this, which is sad. I don't think that's present in young people. I think they would be. I think they'd sit here today and wondering. What, what on earth we're talking about? I think they say, you know, what's the problem, guys? It's just business as usual. You know, when I come out of college, yeah, it's a bun fight because there are three times as many designers being educated as are required on the surface, this is. But I go back to the point, I mean, this is one of our great growth industries, full stop. You know, if we, if we ignore it at this particular point in time, unless we actually encourage that through, and it is about entrepreneurialism, I, I do agree with that. Um, but if we, if we don't grab that opportunity that we've got now, we're, you know, we're stupid. I can, I yeah, Jude. okay, I, yeah. I want to say yeah, no, yeah. a few Come things in response. In the first thing I want to say about New Deal of the Mind, for example, and the whole desire of getting young people into work, there was nothing stopping us before. You know, we didn't have to wait for a financial crisis mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to actually get together and go, wouldn't it be a great idea, bearing in mind the sector is booming, to give a lot of young people who are on the dole or who are you know, trying to make their way in life. There was nothing stopping us, but we just didn't. And so that's, I think, a, a lesson to us, that you know, all rushing around now is all very well. But you know, we weren't worrying about Somerset. They only had £169,000 to cut from their arts budget, for God's sake. That was 100% of their arts budget. 0.004% of the overall yeah, county so council Yeah, so we're all reeling with horror, but we didn't go down and do anything about it any earlier. It was still a tiny amount of money. So I think the sector has to look to itself generally and go, is it really operating in partnership, or is it, is it sort of being ungenerous as a matter of course? That's one thing to say. But it's been a boom time, though, hasn't it? It's been a boom so time. So therefore, therefore, there has been a culture of complacency. And getting back to something that Nee said I, earlier, he said the infrastructure has grown, but the ambitions have shrunk. Yeah, I don't agree with 
both of those statements. The infrastructure has grown enormously. I don't think the ambition has shrunk, but I think that the archetypal divide between art for art's sake, which holds that word excellence over here, and art for the purposes of the greater good of humanity, which holds something else over here, those two have carried on being a schism. And actually, it, it's a completely... Un, uh, useless sort of schism which can be exploited by so many people and I would say that unless we us decide that actually in this age of, of fiscal austerity we are going to tackle the idea of talking about the role of creativity as something so positive for the whole of society unless we articulate it more strongly and joined up then I think we will you know we will be divided and ruled but the final thing I want to talk about was this this phrase entrepreneur I mean I, I wasn't the person who coined it, of course, but I was one of the first people to go to number 11 15 years ago and talk about social entrepreneurs. The young, pe young people aren't a homogenous blob. There's lots and lots of different kinds of young people. So even with all these experience, you know, we, I, I don't think we should be talking about them as if they've got one mindset. <laughs> I remember when fringe theatre began. Nobody wanted to go inside the National Theatre. I, I actually paraded outside against it being built. Um, how, there you go. <laughs> because I was worried that it would become a London-centric idea that the National Theatre had to be in London. I personally thought the distributive idea of the National Theatre of Scotland and Wales and everything, you know, it's, it's, got, it, it's got a lot to say for it. Um, where they're performing in different locations. Yeah, and where they, you know, they capture the nation's psyche, not just yeah. the sort of London idea. But the, the thing is that at that time, no creative young people particularly wanted to work in red plush seated theatres you remember all this and they still a lot of them don't they want to be site specific they want to work in in our lot just working in you know uh, uh, um, huge high rise block that's about to be pulled down in Elephant Castle great piece of theatre and fringe theatre was entrepreneurial I mean it didn't have any money and those people went on to be producers they went on to be indie documentary makers so this idea that young people are sort of turning away from old methods because they're disaffected that's Thank God. I mean, that's what you need young people to be doing. But I also am not sure that the young people I meet who are involved in creative activity, I wouldn't say that they are disaffected with creative activity. I would say that they're incredibly excited by being creative. They're just not looking to the institutions to provide the frameworks for them. And I think that's fine. I think the institutions need to but though, be bolder about saying we'd like to support where we can and where appropriate. And if they're using the word entrepreneur, it doesn't have to mean that that means make me rich, make me personally rich so I can ignore everybody else. A lot of the young people I meet are very concerned that they want to stand on their own two feet, but they also want to make sure that they're bringing people around them and supporting those people. So it's not a dirty word as far as I'm concerned. There were a lot of young people on the streets of London yesterday protesting against education yeah. changes and they can be motivated and a lot of people got very very angry it took me back to a great riot of Good 1984 when I was you know picture on the front of the Daily Mail part of a, a very proud moment was, for me was, actually. Yeah, one of the very my mum was horrified <laughs> but um but what in the context that you know that the young people still can be motivated and they can be passionate about things that affect them what how does, that, how does that play in this debate that we're having at the moment? Bearing in mind that what Nee has said as well. Well, I mean, I think people do feel passionately about things like equality and access. And um, it's very interesting. I mean, you know, all sorts of motivations were at play when you were demonstrating and uh, I was and they were. Um, and, of course, uh, the establishment is horrified by occupations. Um, 
But uh, what it does show is that, that people care about the future. I mean, mm. you know, that what they, what they are largely demonstrating about is what is going to happen to other people, in fact, which plays to, mm. to, to Jude's point about, you know, the, about the way that young people, again, let's not generalise too much, but there is a, there is a sense that uh, uh, perhaps because they have more time, that they have the, uh, the ability to, to think more broadly. Well, I think one of, the, one of the big problems that was identified, um, and we didn't expect this when we began uh, New Deal of the Mind, was that was precisely what Jude is talking about, that this should have happened long ago. And what had happened uh, in terms of access to big creative institutions in particular is that only a certain type of person felt they could have that access. And I think, mm. again, this, this links into what's happening with, mm. with students and universities as well. Um, it became very clear when we started... Uh, using the Future Jobs Fund, which uh, applies only for people who've been um, who are 18 to 24 and long-term unemployed, that uh, when we started offering them jobs in creative institutions, it became clear that that particular demographic had never thought that it was possible to have jobs <coughs> in those places at all. And so immediately, uh, after years and years and years of uh, big cultural institutions trying to do the right thing by means of, uh, of um, bursaries and scholarships and and, uh, and all sorts of imaginative government funding. In fact, by having what was effectively uh, an extreme version of positive discrimination, you can only take people from this group. Suddenly, mm -hmm. guess what? You had black people, Asian people, coming for jobs in big cultural institutions. Those institutions noticed they didn't have black and Asian people working there except in the kitchens. Um, so that is a huge issue, I think. And feeding into that, and there's a lot of anger around this as well, is that we've heard a lot about philanthropy, philanthropy mm. replacing kind of uh, government funding within mm. the arts. What really worries me, because we don't really have the same sort of culture of philanthropy in this country that we do in, say, the States, um, is that it actually what's going to happen is that grant funding is going to be replaced by the philanthropy of the intern, that essentially <laughs> free labour will move into that space and already you talk to small, medium, large cultural institutions, and they're building into their business models free labour as, uh, as part of what they're doing, which I think is disgraceful. Okay, but I'm Quick going to come in on that, because yeah. I sat on a committee for a year um, called Fair Access to the Professions, which was examining the downwardly mobile nature of British society. It was chaired by Alan Milburn. It came, all the, all the professions were there, you know, the police, health, etc., etc. I was representing creativity. And the fact is that this unpaid internship has been going on all the time, particularly in the last 10 years, you know, the, the visual arts market and film industry completely rely on yeah. middle-class children being able to fund themselves. And that is why, actually, the industry has become more and more tilted towards a particular group of people. So it isn't austerity that's produced that. Again, I would say that the thing we need to do in order to go forward is look back and critique ourselves and go, well, actually, we weren't being very generous all round, were we? So now what should we do? That's, so we can't land these problems at this point in time. And, Neil, let me ask you about the specific example of Bigger Fish, because you are reliant on the Arts Council, aren't you? And you're already feeling the cuts, but there is a big question mark hanging over your future. I mean, there's no guarantee that you will have funding in future. And the people that you are dealing with and serving are not the sort of people, by and large, that can get Daddy phone up their friend's design company and get an unpaid internship. So what's that going to do, for, for, for again, for your core constituency? Are you the sort of organisation that can tap into some new spirit of philanthropy, private, enter, uh, pri private giving, corporate giving? 
Um, in March, we did uh, a project where an NHS PCT came to us and said that they were missing their chlamydia testing targets and uh, could they engage our young people to, to try and, and rectify that. So we run the largest street team of young people in London. It's about 165 young people who work with us on a bi-weekly basis. And we deliver marketing for everyone from Radio 1 to you know, online record shops and uh, NHS. So they gave us a contract, we tendered, and we got a contract to, um, to collect chlamydia testing. So we worked with the PCT, trained up the young people, and then we sent them out into the, the uh, local area to collect, them, uh, collect their samples. And so we smashed the, the London-wide uh, collection rate, um, averaging 114 collections per day over a, a 10 day period and uh, we, we did a large scale event for, for uh, about 1500 young people at the roundhouse which everyone who did a test was able to, to um, get a ticket to the event. Some of the young people who, were, who we contract to do that made more than £2,000. One of those young people was on tag at the time so I had to come <laughs> in the morning and then leave, leave and had to, so couldn't come to the event. And, uh, and so he, he had set this goal of buying himself a car by the end of it. That was March. So for me, I like this period because it, 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 it's, it's what, what we're, we're about. It's, it's about being in the culture of youth and in youthful thinking. So it's very much about responding, not because now it's hasn't got money, but actually this is because this is how we want to evolve mm -hmm. as, a, as an organization. So maybe Arts Council is part of that mix, you know, Maybe it's a bigger part, maybe it's a smaller part, maybe the NHS, and maybe the other work that we do is the more commercial-facing work. So you're not well. unduly worried that that funding, that, that stream of funding will dry up and I, you, you're going to be left I, high I, and dry? I find this time exciting. Right. Because I think everyone is, everyone is a, is, is, there's a bit of panic, which is good, because panic is about, is about you reviewing what you're good at and what you're not good at and what, what, pe what you've been saying you're good at and you're not really good at. <laughs> You know, and, and actually having to face face the facts with, with those things, and then I think also, it's good because you start to re really rethink what actually where do we want to be, what does strength and sustainability look like? A, a young generation will always react to and generally reject the cultural offer of the generation before you protesting outside the National Theatre. That's a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard that before. I was going to come make back an entry. <laughs> Um, Olivier was inside at the time, was he? Mm -hmm. um, but more philosophically, I mean, this idea of opportunity, in a time of austerity, will it promote more of a culture of resistance? Can it actually energise young people in the same way that, I mean, the arts didn't wither on the vine during the Thatcher years, did they? We had some fantastic cultural outpouring. Arguably one of the most exciting in terms of the young British artists, that group of Goldsmiths graduates and people from other colleges, they came and squatted empty warehouses along the Thames. I mean, that wouldn't be possible now because all of those warehouses have been converted. <laughs> but that was the result of a time of austerity and unemployment and, and vacant buildings. Different things happened in the 80s that people couldn't have predicted. There was a huge rise in women's theatre, there was a huge rise in uh, black and Asian uh, theatre and art. The people who expected to be hurt and were hurt were the sort of mainstream, um, mainstream white writers actually, mainstream left-wing white writers, all kind of found that their work suddenly couldn't get an airing 
And all, the other thing that was lost was all the sort of agitprop political theatre that belonged to a particular point, you know, that there was about trade unionism, etc. That all went. So did all the youth services. I wouldn't say that that was a good thing at all. Most of the sort of drama clubs all disintegrated. The teachers decided that they couldn't do after schools club. Do you remember there was actually mm. a wholesale sort of slaughter of lots of the infrastructure that actually has taken years to build back up again. But it probably but was more of a DIY, I think, though, didn't it? It prompted, that of resistance that it I'm prompted about. some it, really good things to come out of it. I mean, I'm not personally going to argue for the idea that, you know what, it's great to cut the arts. I'm not going to say that. I don't think that's a good idea to even get into that debate. I think it is, I think the, the balance, the, the careful balance about what you invest in in order to have a great society, but also how you ginger people up all the time to make them take their responsibility about how they use it. We, we, if we were complacent, we should be criticising ourselves. But, I mean, the ideal would be to say, right, with the money that we still have, let's use it better. Not, let's take all the money away, because then we'll, we'll think better. Um, so, I just, you know, it, and, and actually, if you look at when great art has really been produced, the Renaissance was not a poor time. The golden age of Shakespeare, Ben Jonson, etc., this was the time when London was, you know, at its height. It isn't true that out of time, let, I mean, somebody said this, on the, you know, what great art is coming out of Haiti? What great art is coming out of really, really poor countries like Albania? It's hard. So I think this idea that being poor is good for the arts, it's, it's rubbish. But, I mean, certainly we've got less money. Let's be cleverer, as we should have been cleverer in the last 10 years. I think that's the message to ourselves. David, do you want to respond to that? And then I'm going to open it up to the floor, because I'm sure lots of people will have some... Yeah, a couple of things. Um, I, I have real faith in young people. Um, it's their world. It's just unfortunate for them we still own the freehold. But... It's, you know, it's their deal. And, and I think I agree with Jude about the description of social entrepreneur being people who are a very much a me generation, but not a selfish me generation. Their concerns about sustainability and health and crime and issues like that, that the creative industries can help solve. I mean, there are no other solutions to those things. You know, you can only ring fence and throw more money at it and it won't go anywhere. You have to be clever about it. And our industries and our businesses can be clever about it. Um, Judy, you're right about Haiti. Um, I suppose there are t there are though times that you look back on, and I think perhaps you know the the war, for example, generated a huge amount of culture, not necessarily particularly a huge amount of art, but a huge amount of social commentary. And I suppose really that's my final point. Really, that all of this actually, yes, there's a monetized value to it. There's a future for this country in it, no question about that. But there's also better society in it and I think that's really and I think the polarity that you said about at, at one extreme the the excellence and at the other extreme I can't remember how you described it for me it's about just drawing some of those things together perhaps those artists who were uh, squatting in the warehouse they now live in some of them actually mm. <laughs> you know? yes they own so the whole buildings now they do they own the freehold yeah, yeah. Let's open it up to the floor. I'm sure people will have some points either to move it on into a new direction, to ask some questions of, about what we've heard already. First of all, um, there are microphones. Just bear with us. The uh, question on the back row first. First of all, yeah, maybe that. Hi, my name is Ema Gillespie, and I've worked in the arts all my life. Um, that's why I came here. But actually, I'm also a parent. <clears throat> so we've spent so much time talking about young people, and what it occurs to me is there actually aren't any in the room yeah. here. And it's become an us and them conversation. Now, whilst I agree with a lot of what Nisaki said in, the, in his opening speech, I'm also the parent of an 18-year-old and a 15-year-old. And where my son comes is the South Bank Centre, actually. 
He comes to Stockhausen, he comes to Verres, he comes to all sorts of events down here and meets his friends, and a lot of them are free and some of them are paid. My daughter has danced out there on your um, main, your open platform in the ballroom, mm -hmm. and then gone on to dance at Sadler's Wells with a pan-London dance group called Shift, which then went up to Birmingham for a kind of national dance celebration. So there are a lot, and they meet all their friends, you see. They're not just on their own. They meet all their friends from all over London here. And I think that should be recognised and celebrated. There isn't just a disaffected youth mm -hmm. making art in different pockets of North London or West Somerset who aren't participating in the central process. There are really bright, really talented kids all over the country who are, you know, participating in what, what has been created not just by us, but we're the inheritors of what's gone on before. And th there is a real powerful, educated, artistic tradition in this country which we should be proud of and welcoming mm -hmm. people into. Um, my second point on the financing thing is, what, when I was on those marches as well back in the early 80s, no ifs, no buts about the cuts, and uh, the, a, statistic that was, um, <laughs> a statistic that was bandied about then at the time, which I've kind of taken as true all these years, is that back in the time of the Medici's, they were spending as much money on the arts as we were spending um, on nuclear weapons in the 70s, which was basically a, a huge amount of money. And out of that money, we got some fantastic painters and writers. We got whole artistic traditions that changed. And of course, we also got a lot of dross. And one of the things that's happened in my artistic lifetime is that the pressure on accountability within the financing has meant that um, you, there is no room for failure. And that's what these big institutions are about, is producing success after success all the time. Now, if this prompts a rethink, the one thing that I would think could come out of this is that £500 is a very flexible amount of money. Here it keeps somebody middle-ranking on a kind of decent wage for a week. But somewhere else, it creates an entire theatre show that everybody does for free, <laughs> that kind of trickles in and, and whatever. And so I would hope that possibly one of the things that could happen with money and with young people is that there was more generosity in just giving the seed money to get things started up. Martin, do you want to reflect on, on that? I mean, we should well, point out also in the time of the Medici's that was private yes. philanthropy. <laughs> uh, probably the city fathers yeah. of Florence were, not, were cutting their budgets by 100% probably like they are in Somerset. Well, I mean, what can I say? I couldn't agree more with, you know, I, I mean, your two points are, are well made and you're completely right. Um, uh, what we've, as well as doing our kind of work creation, um, we also act as a, as a sort of mini think tank, New Deal the Mind, and we've done three reports, uh, for what they're worth, um, making precisely your point about providing a modicum of startup capital for uh, young creative entrepreneurs, want of a better <coughs> word. I mean, I, I think that the evidence from yeah, from our work, uh, I hate to use the word focus group, but we have done some focus grouping, I have to admit, um, is that what people seem to want is a very small amount of seed funding, um, a little bit of support uh, in terms of mentoring and peer-to-peer uh, -peer mentoring, but also mentoring from people who are established in the system, and they want a little bit of space to work. Uh, they're not asking for much, but that's not the same as nothing at all. They you just need that tiny bit of seed funding. Um, I mean, in the 80s, there was something called the Enterprise Allowance Scheme, which was subverted by 
artists. It was meant to set up sort of small manufacturing firms, a little bit of money to come off the dole to set up your own business. And uh, what happened is that lots of artists thought, well, actually, I'll, I'll, I'll go on this and just be an artist. Uh, I think we need a little bit more of that, of that kind of tiny seed funding. You're absolutely right. Quick response from me, and then Jude. Yeah. If it came across um, that I was saying that all young people are disaffected, it's not my intention. I, I think what, what I'm saying is, is that they're not disaffected, they're just getting on with it, is the first point. I think, you know, in terms of the role of the institutions, I work with lots of them, you know, and I, you know, I've worked, we did a project, you know, in the summer with, with bringing young people here and work with Somerset House, and we work with a lot of places. I think there's a massive, that's a, in, in, in my point is, that there is a, an ecology which is how those in, those organisations provide support for the, the level of organisations sitting beside them or underneath them, which in turn gives that space, that small bit of time and support for the younger people in there. I think the the, the fact that that you 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 can see that your kids and and other their friends come to the come to these institutions is all very well, but you also have to think about how this room reflects. You know who is accessing those institutions on on a whole, and and who is actually moving up into careers into those institutions as a whole. And I think there's there's something there's something there for me about that. It is eight. It is First of all, it is eight thirty on a Thursday morning. I mean, mm -hmm. it, that's who you'd expect. To be, who you'd expect to be in the room is in the room. I I think we've just done a whole uh, two weeks called International Poetry Festival with huge amounts of young people of all different kinds of backgrounds absolutely appropriating the space and assuming that they would do i mean i don't want to sort of blow the south bank center's trumpet but obviously you know we have thousands of programs going on with young people doing all kinds of things which they they're not being coerced into doing i mean you're right that they they feel as if they own lots of the place and in fact they do as far as i can tell um but i i also think that we shouldn't just go down the road. I don't know why we're only talking about young people, either way, since we've got an ageing population. We seem to have gone down that route. You know, we have a lot of older people who, in an age of austerity, actually also have cultural rights, time to be creative, also could be creating all kinds of cascading mentoring schemes. If all the hundred of us in the room, if we all decided that personally we were going to go out and do something about this with a group of people, they have to be young then there's an awful lot that we individually can offer. And so I just don't want to get also stuck down this idea that, you know, it's all about young people and social entrepreneurial young people. Because if you look at another big project that we just housed, which is the El Sistema system from Venezuela, you know, where uh, in Venezuela they have 250,000 youth orchestras, 250 youth orchestras, 250,000 young people playing. These are big collectives of, of energy and, and, you know, when we do big dance here, I mean, we're talking about thousands of people taking part, and there's something about that collective coming together as well, not just to protest, but you to celebrate. You want a Chavez approach to the arts here? It isn't his approach. It's nothing to do with Chavez. I mean, he he he's But he's endorsed it. He's endorsed it because it's great for Venezuela's reputation. Yeah. But it's been going for 30 years, long before yeah, Chavez. It, has, it, yeah. it it's it's nothing to do with that. It's it's to do with individuals really believing and investing in the power of the arts to change people's lives forever. And that can be done in lots of different ways. But uh, I, as I say, I just think it's not just about young people. Uh, I know there's some questions here. Peter York, I know you had your hand up. Do you still want to? Yeah. I want to come back on the whole thing of the um, financial contribution of the arts and the creative industries and the arguments that were, have been advanced over the last 15 years for that. And I think the lesson here, and it's going to, uh, is 
if you're going to use utilitarian and economic arguments for the value of a sector, you get better get it right. You better get your sums right. You better be convincing but individually in terms of the arguments and the human beings who present those arguments. Otherwise, people will pay lip service, like poor old Gordon Brown reading out the speech in the National Gallery in 2004. It says here, he didn't believe it. He didn't know what he was talking about. Um, you, you can't take comfort from those things. If you can't show what, what the sector is and how it relates, then don't tangle in that stuff. Because... You're, you're then left with a situation, if you borrow the language of profit-maximising marketplaces, you're expected to perform in those ways. People will say, oh, lovely, we like words like social entrepreneur. That means you take the risk, you do it. You don't need anything. So the business of sorting out what is genuinely pump-priming, how the relationship between the arts and the creative industries uh, and which are the creative industries and which are not, because argument rages about that, you better get that right. Because if government, and I think there's no difference between this and the last government, uh, in, in terms of facing uh, the current situation, if government doesn't really believe uh, you re represent a a real economic blackmailing power, because we've been comparing ourselves, oh, I'm, I'm um, joining the, the throng here, we've been comparing ourselves with the city. Well, if we really were like the city, we'd have been exercised a huge power of blackmail because the city has exercised a huge power of blackmail. They say, we're going to go. Oh, if you're nasty to us, we're going to go. And every government of every colour jumps. Well, well, let's, let's leave it there, Peter, because when you're you saying I mean, I mean, the government has got yes. to get it right, what you're referring to is that argument that says that for get every the argument that comes right. get in, the you argument get two right. back, three yeah. back, and that's the... And don't use the language of the market where it doesn't work. And it's not only mm. the language of the market, it's the language of, uh, of social renewal, of the instrumental argument that yeah. it is good for you in different ways. Um, David, do you want to reflect on that? Because, again, I know we're coming back to young yeah. people again, but that is <laughs> the three agencies that are seen represented here are dealing primarily with young people. Yeah, uh, bang on, Peter. Um, hello again, by the way. Uh, you've got to get the pitch to match the agenda of the people you're pitching to, full stop. So, yep, there's a, a very simple financial argument in terms of export value and net income to the country. That's one. The second is you have to hit needs, not in, in, in employment, education or training. If you can reduce that figure, they're interested in listening to what you've got to say. So just, you just get those two things pinned. Don't make it any more complicated to begin with. Then in the middle, there's some stuff around the sort of sustainability, health solutions piece as well. And, yeah, they're interested. Let's You're absolutely right. Let's move on. There are two questions here. Um, gentleman on the end of the row here. Then I'm going to get Roger Grove, who's on the front, and he wants to say something. Thank you. Uh, Harry Rich from the RIBA. Yeah, really, in a sense, following on from Peter's point, I think our problem here is there's two different conversations going on. There's one, uh, both about valuable things. One conversation is about entrepreneurship and about creative industries in what I would see as that, which is things like design and architecture, which are businesses. You go out there, you use creativity to generate income, and that's the purpose of that, with some social purpose at the fringes of it. There's the other side of it, which is the arts, which is what this conversation is meant to be about. And I think the risk we have is muddling the two up, because it, it then means you end up, as Peter suggests, use the same language, the same arguments for, for both. Yeah. 
Whereas actually, I believe we should be saying in relation to the arts, arts will always need some degree of social, uh, also a public subsidy, um, which is not the same for design, which is not the same for architecture. And, and I say that representing 42,000 architects. So we should keep the two things separate and not confuse them. And yes, of course, arts has to be run in a way that is in some sense entrepreneurial, but that doesn't mean it's all about making cash profits out of it. Um, and I think muddling those two up is very dangerous. And I think also the conversation we've had about young people, um, we can talk about creative young people. That is not the same as young people in the arts. There are two different things going on. Before we get a response from the panel, I, I, I'm gonna, I know there's another point here. Uh, I'm just going to take this one here well, first. Do you mind? Oh, is it the same? Yeah. Yeah. I just want to follow on from that. My name's Sally Taylor. I run something called the London Centre for Arts and Cultural Exchange. Let's just look at three headlines in today's papers, shall we? One, the, the, the cut of Somerset to 0%. Two, the enormous amount of money paid for an Andy Warhol today, mm -hmm. and three, the fact that Google have just increased the wages of all their people by 10% and they're giving them a $1,000 Christmas bonus. Now, no wonder the government doesn't get it, and no wonder, David, that we can't hang together in those circumstances. One thing that actually we can hang together about, and I was very interested that Jude mentioned it, and of course Nee talked about it, is the audience. And we haven't talked about audiences, and we haven't talked about the need for the audience uh, at this time of austerity for the arts in particular, although we have had some fantastic examples of it from um, our friend at the back here and from Jude. I think that's what we can actually coalesce around in the arts, um, not all these economic arguments at all. While the ideas are flying, I'm just going to keep them coming from the floor. If anybody wants to respond, just, just signal to me. But uh, Roger Grave on the front row, I, I, filmmaker, and you've worked... I've worked in the arts all my life, yeah. and I'm, I'm also an advisor to the Paul Hamlin Foundation and chair of Complicity and have been for 20 years. And one of the things I wanted to say, which is interesting in relation to the wider argument, is that there's a cognitive dissonance between the people's experience of the arts and the category into which it's placed. And mm. we know that more people go to concerts and go to galleries and go to football matches. That's been true for 20 years. But somehow or other, the arts are seen as this separate thing, which is an optional extra that you only do at mm. times of plenty, mm. rather than, as Jude was saying, something that is part of everyone's mm. daily experience. And I think in the, the Somerset wouldn't dare to cut something as central as that if they understood what it means. So I think we have a marketing problem. Sorry, but very specifically, I wanted just to say, look at the Paul Hamlin website to see what collaboration means, because it's going to aiming at young people who are marginalized. It's actually very focused, and there's money available. Look at the productions that Complicity are doing right now. One's a Japanese show in Japanese at the Barbican, and in, uh, next Saturday we started a co-production with the Dutch Opera Company at the ENO. We've been doing co-productions for years, and we did with Jude's company as well, but it takes time, it's very deft, and you need to fancy footwork. And finally, in the film business what's happened is that because the arts and other difficult subjects don't get the money when people are preoccupied with ratings, there's something called crowdfunding, which Franny Armstrong has done with The Age of Stupid, and many of you may know, and it's been something that people have used to get money, bypassing the institutions, but going to the taste of general people who are on the internet who will respond with small amounts of money, but enough to give a really a mass feeling to these important works of art, dare I say. I'm going to move it on. I just want to have a response to several people have mentioned Somerset. County Council, 100% cut. If you look at the websites, actually, Somerset's County Council website, before this cut was instituted yesterday, the leader of the council, I think his name is Ken Maddock, he uh, writes in a blog there that uh, they have inherited the problems. It's uh, inherited from the previous administration in Somerset, which I think was Liberal Democrat-led. And he said, this is no time 
to be funding the nice things in life. <coughs> now, there's no explicit reference to the arts on that website, but he uses the word nice, and I think it's... Um, I think that's the problem, mm. though, Jude, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That yeah. the arts are seen as nice, as an add-on, as a luxury. Well, I think in 100 years' time, people will look back and go, my God, they were so backward. I mean, we don't lock people up in asylums for their whole life anymore, but we did 100 years ago. We didn't think that ch children, that all children could learn to read and write. We now know they can, and we worry about to, to what level. It's a process of time. I just do believe that we need to get the story right. It will take us a long time to get it right. In the end, it'll get right because of the audiences and participants who so much want it to be the case that they themselves say, well, this isn't on. So, I, I, you know, politicians are always behind the, the, um, the track, and artists and creative mm. thinkers are always in front, mm. quite a long way in front. That's the whole point of it. So, I, I, th that's not a dilemma I'm prepared to live with. I, I want to say something completely different from it, because, you know, we, we were also going to talk about art in the time of austerity. Damien Hirst's diamond skeletal face, which, you know, kind of mirrored the, the Jacobean moment when the, you know, the Elizabethan age had passed and you were into an, an age of decadence. I mean, it, it, it's very Webster-like, that moment, when that skull said, do you know what, we're heading for our own self-destruction. Watch out for the bloodbath. And so it's very interesting to me what art is going to be produced in this austerity. Next year, we celebrate the 60th anniversary of the Festival of Britain. And we're going to do that in a, in a wonderful way, I believe. But, you know, obviously it's bricolage, not steel and, you know, burnished glass. It's going to be about how do you put things together in a way that comes from, if we haven't got a lot of money, is that a problem aesthetically? Or does that produce a new kind of aesthetic? So we haven't got time to talk about it, but there is no. a whole other debate about what art comes out of austerity. Well, maybe we have some responses. No, there's a question there. There's a question there. Sarah Churchwell on the front row has been signalling to me for the last five minutes. We'll go there first. And then these... Did you want to say something? And then these two here, and then over here. Thanks. I just wanted to pick up on a couple of points. Um, as somebody who teaches at a university, it strikes me that... And also work in culture and creative industries, and I would hope that I, I think I do both, um, that, that we talk about young people going to universities and, and their passion yesterday as if that's somehow disconnected from the rest of the conversation. It's just a, a, an, you know, evidence that they can be passionate. But to me, part of that argument about, about uh, articulating the, collect, the, the value of what we do in terms of create, creativity and culture collectively is precisely picking up on Peter's point about joining those things up, about not being balkanized, partly be as a result of the way that funding structures work, mm. so that universities mm. see themselves as having to defend their corner, mm. and the arts see themselves as having to defend mm. their corner, mm. but to say, actually, we belong together. But also picking up on Peter's point, which I think is really important, we will fail if we try to have a market-driven argument. And one of the things that we need to do is to, is to argue, I think, very, very passionately that there are things that are valuable that cannot be measured in market terms. And if we accept the idea that only things are valuable that can be measured in market terms, we've lost before we began. That, in fact, what I, I was reminded in what Jude was saying, uh, I read a quote the other day that apparently Churchill um, was asked to cut f funding to arts and culture during the war. And he said, if we're not fighting the war to protect arts and culture, I don't know what we're fighting it for. We have to push back and say that there are things that are valuable. This is a classic case of knowing the price of everything and the value of nothing. Carry on with, with quick points here. The gentleman on the end of the road. Good morning. My name is Derek Wyatt. The reason why Somerset can do what it can do is that no arts legislation is actually delegated. Mm. That is, it's compulsory. It's not. It's optional. Mm. So that's why it can do that. Now, how has that happened? But it's happened since 1945. 
In Bangladesh, Mohammed Yunus has created a microfinance bank called the Grameen Bank. Is it time that we asked him to create an arts bank that was microfinanced? Because there isn't that easy, low-end, £10, £100 fund available anywhere in the United Kingdom. Uh, secondly, the, the argument you've had here about national creative, what, it, what part of the GDP it is, well, it clearly hasn't permeated beyond this room. Because I can tell you there isn't probably a county councillor who knows those figures, who understands those figures. So what has the Arts Council or the RDAs been doing for the last 15 years? It isn't understood what the creative economy does beyond the big urban centres. And that's a failure on our part. And I would say lastly, on the soft diplomacy, which we talk about a lot, we're all over the world. We've got the British Museum helping to build a British Museum, well, an Arab Museum equivalent in, in uh, Abu Dhabi. We've got the Opera House teaching Western Ballet in Beijing. We've got these huge things, but actually, I represented a constituency for 13 years called Sittingbourne and Sheppey, 140,000 people. No cinema, no theatre, no <coughs> music. It's one hour from here. So I don't think we've done a very good job, actually. Mm -hmm. mm. Uh, gentlemen on the back there, and then we're going to take this question from the lady. Thank you. I think there's two arguments here being muddled into one. There's the economic argument of where no one quite understands of what taxpayers' money is, what it should be used for, no one really asks the taxpayer what they want their money used for, and it's come down from government that was, we should want this and we have to have that. And I think that's one argument. And then we have the social argument of, of you know, what is the arts being used for? What's the access being used for? And they've, they've been muddled into one thing. And in reality, people do want their money spent on the arts, the free access to museums, the free access to concert halls and things like that. But government is, is, is there, you know what, we should get rid of a lot of these things because people don't need them and people don't want them. In reality, we do want them. But I think there's, all, uh, there, there's a second point is, what do you want from government? You haven't really artic articulated, you know what, we want government to get out of the way and say people can get on with what they want to do and stop with all this legislation and regulation. We just want to do what we want to do. Lady here, and then we'll have one at the back, and then we'll, we'll bring these thoughts together. Lucy Blythe from Philia International. I just wanted to pick up a couple points, um, but first I wanted to suggest that people go and have a look at the 1941 film Sullivan's Travels by Preston Sturgis, um, because they were reflecting on these issues of art in hard times. Um, it, funding, uh, it totally depends on the audience you're talking to. The economic argument is the only argument that works with some, but there are others for whom the health of the human spirit is the argument. That's not the one to use with government, obviously. Um, Someone uh, talked about different sources of funding. I always have to remind people how little funding actually comes from the private sector. I think the last statistic I saw was 7% of, of voluntary income came from the private sector for charities. Um, and I also want to reflect back 20 years ago when I arrived. Um, it was not just philanthropy of the intern, it was philanthropy of the senior managers as well. Yeah. And I think a lot of the arts institutions were populated by people who could only afford to work there because they had trust funds. Yeah. Um, finally, a question mostly for David uh, about how you would suggest that we collectively provide practical support to creatives. Um, Design Council and others have tried over the years. And it seems to me that part of the issue is trying to drive uh, demand as well as, as help supply. When you say creatives, uh, well, you mean artists who need support? Artists support. or designers, I'm talking mm. about the broadest 
field, mm. but I'm, I was specifically thinking of designers in this case because I think there's a, whether you're driving demand or supply question. Many of whom would see themselves as entrepreneurs as well at the yeah. same time. So, David, quick response to that. We'll have a question um, at the back and I think we're going to have to wrap. Quick answer by way of example. We've set up something called the Design Alliance, which is essentially a distribution channel in our terms for skills, assets that we have. Um, it's focused around the local or regional demographic, not around the London demographic. There are local or regional organisations. The principle is to bring them together. Uh, and in, in essence, what we're describing is buy the first drink. So by, by doing that, they become localised units. Now, you could apply this to any age. Clearly, going back to older people, there's a, there's a mechanism there. Um, this is happening now. And we see that, that there's a sort of crafts equivalent, um, there could be an actor's equivalent, a writer's equivalent. And the skills council that we're running, unlike the sort of um, land grab type principles of some of the others, is much more about seed corning that, setting it up, letting it go, and letting the people run it, because they'll do the right job. We won't. Question at the back. Hi, my name's um, Theodora Clark, and I'm a PhD student in History of Art. Um, you've talked a lot today about young people, and as one of the few people in their early 20s in the room, <laughs> I think we should probably say something. Um, my first point is, it's a real catch-22 for those of us who are young people in the arts, because I'm a PhD student where History of Art has been 40% layoff of our faculty. We've merged with now History to keep us alive as a department. We don't anymore have grants for our PhD students in the subject. And I had to do a number of unpaid internships as a young person to get experience at a museum in some kind of arts institution. And I'm fully aware that lots of young people can't afford to do some kind of unpaid internship. So I think it's really tricky for us in that we want to go into this industry, but if the government funding is going to be reduced to universities, and with the Brown Report in the last two weeks, you know, where they're going to ring-fence funding on sciences but reduce funding for the humanities, I'm really concerned about what's going to happen to my generation because if you're not going to support us when we are young at the bottom end of the ladder, when we need the least amount of fun funding, then what's going to happen to us in the future? Is there going to be a new generation of people in the creative industries? Well, let's see if we can bring together those thoughts and... and and look at everything you've heard. Jude, let me start with you. We're doing the order that we started with. And, and maybe you could just think about what, you know, the responses to the funding streams and to the support. And you talked about the Medicis in Florence and Elizabeth in England, these being golden ages, and actually the art flourished. I mean, are you suggesting, therefore, that in this time of austerity, the arts will inevitably wither? No, I'm saying... Because actually I think that compared to other parts of the world, I think the UK is still rich in resources and thinking and money but the main resource you always have to have is thinking and feeling empathy and intelligence that put those two two things together you can do a lot and i i think that the way we, that we we reacted like a SWAT team albeit you know late on to the idea of you know a, a jobs opportunity for young people and what what Nia is saying and what john david is saying about you know let's take this moment and start really rethinking structure design structures for the future you know, we've got all the material, the audience has mm. talked about all the different things and how you, you know, piece them together in a clever way. I think it's about the sector doing some redesign mm. of how it operates mm. so that it starts really including in its story the audiences, and I mean, that, that, that's everybody, the audiences and the potential 
artists and practitioners. We've got to design them into the story of how we go forward. So that's the, the, what, what I think we have to do, and I think we have to put some time into it, which is not sort of rushing around and doing quick deals, but really some time. And I, I'm very interested in how we do do that. Uh, and then the second thing is, I think that we, I mean, I'm a public servant. That's what I'm, I'm paid from subsidies. So I am, by, by, you know, I am a public servant. I think we have to re-energise what being a public servant really is for lots and lots of people. And then we have to ask the private sector, how private do they mean? Do they literally mean I have no responsibility whatsoever? Or do they mean I, I'm a, an entrepreneur or I, I make my, my money in this particular way? But if we want to preserve a mixed economy culture in the arts, which I do, then I think this thinking about redesign has got to involve both sides uh, and discussing what is public as a responsibility and what is private as a, as a means of, of, of living your life. So uh, in that respect, I think it is an exciting opportunity, provided we sort of slow down for a minute in order to speed up with a different shape. Martin, I know you reacted when the gentleman over there talked about the failure of that instrumental argument, or the economic argument that says you put a pound in, you get two back. You know, mm. Where is the result of that? Who's been listening? Which politicians have actually taken note and have acted upon that? Well, I think, I mean, I think uh, around the room there, there's a, a, a collective resistance to the idea of the market-driven argument. I'm absolutely delighted that Peter York's bullshit detector is as well-tuned uh, as it was when I first started reading him during the last recession. Um, and he made, and other people have made, my point much better than I did uh, which is that it doesn't matter how often you make these arguments about the size and the worth of the creative sector. Um, a lot of people aren't hearing it. A lot of people aren't listening. And perhaps in the end it's just so much bullshit anyway and uh, that we should start thinking of a, of a better argument. The, the feeling that I have is that um, the great thing about the creative sector, if we can talk about this huge unwieldy beast as a, as a single entity is that people do just kind of get on with it uh, and it's done through instinct as much as anything else uh, I think there is a there's an elephant in the room isn't there really I mean um, no one has actually mentioned the dread words of the Arts Council mm. um, is there anybody from the Arts Council here well there's a surprise what do you do at the Arts Council just of regular funding. Yeah, first okay. So well, you've got that job of deciding who loses their funds. It's funny we no, didn't. Make the you don't make the decision. Uh, <laughs> but you've got to make the dirty phone call, though. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, it is it is a miracle. I think it's extraordinary. I think we dirty phone call in that way. So. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's terrible use of words. It's, it's, ex it's extraordinary, I think. It's too early for me. That whereas in every other government department, I mean, you can talk about the wisdom of this, but in every other gov government department, there have been cuts as well as reform. Uh, I mean, I have my doubts about whether you can reform and cut at the same time without uh, causing catastrophe, but that's what they've been doing. DCMS is the one department where there have been cuts without reform. Uh, I'm amazed that the Arts Council is actually going to uh, have a bigger empire as a result of uh, what's happened with the cuts. I've been at occasions like this with Arts Council people rather glibly uh, celebrating the fact that they are going to be taking over, they hope, the functions of the Film Council and Museums, uh, Libraries and Archives Council. Uh, and we have less money to play with it. 
yeah, but the same, the same organisation and more power, uh, more power, less money. That's a bit of a nightmare situation. And um, I mean, I remember at the very end of the Brown era, uh, a woman called Helen Scott Lidgett being brought in to talk about uh, and you know, consider how you might move forward with the arts. And uh, she went to a few conferences uh, where people talked from this organisation and that organisation representing the arts. And she said to me, I tell you what, uh, in the end, my advice to Gordon Brown is abolish everything with the word council in it. <laughs> and I think we should take that away today. Oh, apart from creative yeah, cultural skills. I'd agree with you. I'm not saying I'm not saying abolish the arts council. I'm not saying abolish the arts council. I am absolutely not saying abolish the arts council. I'm saying reform it. Reform it. Yeah. <laughs> um, a few things. Uh, I think uh, what I what I see is is the opportunity to uh, redefine the relationship within the ecosystem of the the creative arts and social enterprise. And I think that's a very good point that was made, which is that there needs to be a distinction between the arts, between culture, and between social enterprise, and even between youth engagement, etc. Because I think they're all quite different things. Um, I think like the parent who introduces their, their child to, to the arts and to the world, there's a relationship between institutions and the grassroots organisations to be able to open a door in which new things can occur. But in that same kind of uh, relationship, you, as a parent, you must still, not being one, but understanding, I guess from my side of the fence, that you always have to allow for your child to, to go and do something that you might not necessarily like or not necessarily in keeping with your thinking or the generations before you. And we should accept that and be embracing of that and find ways to encourage the next generation to feel free to be able to express their world and their reality and their future. Um, the Arts Council, I just came from my uh, um, RFO briefing yesterday and I don't agree. I mean, I, I think, I think you know, they, they take, as I see it, they, they're losing 50% of their admin, their administration, mm. you know. I think, I think what, I, what I see is they provide a, a, a service, a public service, which wouldn't allow us to have done what we, what we have currently done. My first ever grant and the first ever piece of investment, short of my mum not charging me rent, <laughs> I thought, was, was from the Arts Council. So I think there's an important role in there, which is picking up on that point of a, a, an old concept of time, space, money, which is what people, a lot of people want, is they want that small you know, entrepreneurs and s small startups and creative you know, uh, businesses want that space to have a little bit of investment, a little bit of time and a little bit of money mm. to redefine, to define themselves. And I think that's in a way what we're talking about doing now is that in this space that we are now we have to re-look at the money and redefine what we're about. David, a brief final word if you will. Uh, I, I agree that Sector Skills Council is a crap name, that's the first thing. Um, <laughs> uh, it is. Um, I, I know that money is heretical, I realise where I'm coming from on that, but I don't see any difference between um, at one end of the platform architecture being a self-sufficient revenue generating object and at the other end arts being an object that actually provides similar provision, but for people, um, I can't. It's just they're just different roles within the same within the same space, and I think that 
you know, if we can get that argument together, and if we go to what Jude's saying about redesigning some of these systems, and you know, perhaps the argument about the Arts Council is not the Arts Council, but the design of the Arts Council and how that operates and integrates with with the industries. Um, but the final comment: I feel really optimistic about the future. Thank you very much indeed. I think it's been a really stimulating and an insightful and probably inconclusive discussion. But <laughs> the art. There's the art. It will, it will continue. Um, Jude Kelly, Martin Bright, Lee Sackey, David Worthington, thanks very much for your time.